0: Hello and welcome everybody to a very special episode of The Partial Historians. I am one of your hosts, Dr. G, and with me is Dr. Rad. Hello, everybody. And we are super excited because we are going to be sitting down and having a conversation with Professor David Potter. Hello.
1: Hello. How are you? It's very nice to be here this evening. Or at least it's evening for me.
0: <laughs> it is fantastic to have you here. Yes, the time zones are quite different, aren't they? Where it's the morning here um, and the evening there. And when everybody listens, it could be any time at all. So power of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> David Potter is the Francis W. Kelsey Collegiate, Professor of Greek and Roman history. And Arthur F. Thurnau, professor at the University of Michigan. Uh, He has written a number of books, some of which you may be familiar of, including The Origin of Empire, Rome from the Republic to Hadrian, Constantine the Emperor, The Victor's Crown, a history of ancient sport from Homer to Byzantium, and Theodora, Actress, Empress, and Saint. So we can see from this back catalogue that David has a fantastic breadth and depth of knowledge uh, when it comes to both Roman and Greek history. And we are super excited to be sitting down to chat about the latest book uh, that David has written, which is called Disruption, Why Things Change. And this is a really broad look at the concept of disruption over time and the kind of effect that it might have when we start to think about history and the human experience. So it goes from everything from ancient Rome right through until some of the big hard-hitting thinkers of the 19th century and how that leads into the modern world today. So thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you uh, so much for having me. It's a, a great pleasure to be able to talk to you.
2: This is pretty trippy because I used uh, some of your work in my thesis, so it's a bit, it's a bit weird to be talking to you now. <laughs>
1: well, I, I, I hope it was, it was helpful to you.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> Good.
0: Let's get started with just a sort of a broad sort of question to get us into this. Um, how would you define the concept of disruption?
1: Well, the way I define it in the book is a change that's so profound that you can't, can't go back again. Uh, I was trying to use, to avoid the word revolution, even though a number of the things I talk about are called revolutions, uh, because it just covers too broad a spectrum of events. I mean, you have plenty of revolutions uh, that start out looking like they're going someplace and end up going nowhere. Uh, but a disruption is a change Uh, of complete change of direction. And uh, what I look at, therefore, you know, the conversion to Christianity, uh, which was really, I think, uh, absolutely fundamental. Um, The rise of Islam, uh, which brought an end to a world system that was a thousand years old and replaced it with something completely different. Uh, The Protestant Reformation, which again, threw out one way of Uh, organizing Europe and organizing human thought and open the door for something completely different. Uh, And then the use of uh, political theory to shape actual constitutions. I mean, nowadays it's a little hard for us to realize just how remarkable a step uh, this actually uh, was. Um, But also uh, it reminds us that uh, the same set of ideas don't work the same way for everybody. uh, And contrasting the American and French revolutions uh, really, I thought, brought out uh, some of the crucial aspects of uh, what could be a successful or a completely catastrophic uh, disruption. Um, And then moving into the uh, 20th century, uh, looking at, uh, first of all, the development of Marxism uh, and then social Darwinism, uh, which I fear is far more present um, certainly in our lives nowadays. And many people realize uh, and then looking at two of the disruptions that stem from them, one being the Bolshevik re- revolution and the other, uh, the rise of Nazism. Uh, and then I try to apply all of this to some events uh, far more recently, uh, because what inspired me to write the, the book in the first place uh, were things that were happening in the United States in 2017. Uh, the notion that the president of the United States would be sitting there uh, supporting the um, people who were essentially backing insurrection against the government of the United States uh, and uh, supporting people whose value systems were com- really completely at odds uh, with the value system uh, of, the, uh, of the country. Um, and then really raised a, a question, how did we get there? Um, and how did we get to Brexit? Um, and how was it that we had uh, the rise of the National Front or Alternative for Deutschland, uh, and generally the uh, phenomenon of uh, of populism and anti democratic populism uh, that we can see that is uh, such a feature of our own time, and then hopefully give people a thought about what to do about it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think we I think we share opinions about Trump and Trumpism <laughs> uh, after having looked at some of your comments <laughs>
0: on, oh, yes. on these
2: recent phenomenon. Yes. But we, of course, focus very much on the ancient world in our podcast. So I was wondering, when you think about disruption in the ancient world and thinking about the key example that you've identified, what can you tell us about that with Constantine and the big changes that he brings about with Christianity?
1: Well, I think that what we can see, if if you'd asked a Christian in 300 uh, whether or not he expected to see an emperor who was also a Christian, in the next uh, half dozen year, dozen years, they would have looked at you. You're mad, and they said, "Yeah, this isn't the point anyway." I mean, we're here opposed to the value system of conventional uh, society. I mean, we're we're not here trying to tell you that rich makes right, uh, and uh, you know, our set of ideas are very particular. Um, a set of ideas shaping a very particular community. Now, once Constantine becomes a, a, a Christian he has to really effectively reshape Christianity from the ground up so it can provide a governing ideology. Um, and he has to provide the Christian church uh, with a uh, actual doctrine, uh, a unifying set of principles. So in a way, he changes Christianity uh, almost as much as he changes everything, uh, everything else. Uh, but what it now means, of course, is that the thought of the classical world that's going to survive to us is filtered through um, what Christians feel like reading? Um, so it's a really fundamental alteration in a system of thought. Um, and you don't go back from there uh, at all. And that's why I thought that Constantine uh, was a good starting point for this. Uh, but I also thought that Constantine brought out some very important points about what makes this kind of, of disruption successful. I mean, here's a guy who'd grown up in the court of Diocletian, had seen persecution in action, and realized it didn't work. So um, what we can see when we uh, look at Constantine, and uh, there's a there's a whole backstory here, of general hostility to Eusebius, um, since I basically feel that one has to work with Constantine in the order in which things are written and not go to a retrospective work by a bishop who's trying to make uh, Constantine out to be far more uh, diehard um, as a Christian than he, than he ever was. I mean, this is the man who, you know, who said when uh, lightning struck the palace in Rome, please call the Heruspices and find out what's going on in the, in the 320s, um, and still had temples open in, in Constantinople. Uh, because he realized that the way you get people to follow you is by showing them advantages, Uh, that you can't convince people by telling them that their most deeply held beliefs are stupid uh, or that they shouldn't have them. I mean, the temples that he closed uh, sponsored temple prostitution or oracles or things like that. It was pretty easy to see why he said, okay, not this one, but the Serapium can stay open. um, And, you know, the the temple of Capitoline, Jupiter is still up there. Just please don't sacrifice. Um, but you know, it, was, it was really this sort of sense that if you are really changing things successfully, you're finding a way to incentivize change rather than compel it.
0: And I think this is a fascinating uh, notion when we think about Constantine, because in popular thinking, he's often just sort of set up as kind of this landmark imperial figure who's like... the the precise cross point between what used to be and what comes next. And it's a very clear line. But when we start to look at his life and his career, it's a real progression of belief and change over the course of his life. And some of those sources obviously have a bit of a vested interest in maybe making him a little bit more intensely Christian early on than perhaps he was. And I think you do a good job of balancing that out and sort of just bringing attention to some of the ideas, which maybe have taken it a little bit too far too soon when it comes to Constantine and his belief system.
1: Well, I'd like to think so, um, because I think one of the the critical documents here is actually his letter to the bishops at the Council of Arles. And there's been a tendency to say, well, uh, this has got to be a forgery, because It doesn't look like anything else which is exactly why it can't be a forgery if it was a forgery it would look like everything else you know you don't forge things that look eccentric um and he writes to the bishops and says i was realizing there were a few things wrong with me and therefore i um, was as i was seeking a better way i met the god who stands in the watchtower of heaven and he showed me how to become a better person and this is a, a classic account of a conversion and the way that a Roman emperor does it. He doesn't go out there talking. He, he and God talk to each other. That's why he's the emperor.
2: <laughs>
1: uh, and you know, it confirms uh, absolutely the story that we know was going around uh, in 313 when the Panagyres said, we understand that you've had a secret meeting with divine mind. Uh, and this has shown you things that none of the rest of us could understand. Uh, so I mean, it really comes together that this is the conversion story, and it's a very personal one. Um, and then, you know, as Van Urek, uh realized uh, many years ago, we actually know which bishops went with Constantine to Rome. It's a very small group of people uh, who work with him to begin to reshape Uh, the church, in addition to, of course, uh, Osiris of Cordoba, but it's about a half dozen uh, Christian leaders from the Western Empire um, who work with him to shape um, a method of incorporating Christianity into government.
0: And it doesn't really go that smoothly, does it? I mean, it doesn't appear to go smoothly in the beginning for him.
1: No, it doesn't. And uh, the Donatist controversy, I think, took him by complete surprise. Uh, I don't think he had really a really clear idea that Christians could hate each other quite as bitterly as they did. <laughs> uh, Love thy uh, neighbor uh, doesn't mean throw him off a cliff, usually. Um, and you know, he reacted. Uh, you could see him begin to lose his temper uh, with the Donatists. Uh, Until, I suspect, um, Osius or somebody like Tantius, who was in the court by that point, sat him down and said, look, here's my book on the death of the persecutors. Um, And, you know, you don't want to go there. Uh, And so we can see him begin to issue a persecution edict against the Donatists and then pull back. And that, I think, is one of the most remarkable sort of moments in the reign of Constantine. Um, Is an emperor changing his mind but it seems at that point you know he's moved another step to understanding what it's going to mean if he really wants to uh, be a a christian emperor uh, you know you can still believe in jupiter and all and, and Sol invictus is on the coins and all of that but no persecution and that's what he really holds holds to all the way uh, all the way through i mean when he comes to dealing with the arian controversy later Um, it's a much better organized um, operation from his point of view.
0: I'm interested in how, I mean, we've got Constantine on the one hand who's doing all of this stuff, obviously going through a bit of a personal process alongside what becomes a more politicized process as those ideas that he has about Christianity start to take shape within the empire that he's increasingly gaining more control over but at the same time I think the formal adoption of Christianity at the highest level of society is probably going to not just be a moment of disruption for a lot of people but come at quite some surprise for many people living inside the borders of the empire. To what extent are we assuming that everyday Romans are expecting this kind of change to happen?
1: i think very few of them expected this kind of change to happen uh, at all and uh, you know, they would have known probably something about christians and you know they thought i thought they were a little bit strange um, i think there's a wonderful uh, document again uh, connected with the origins of the donatist controversy uh, where the mayor of a town is wandering around. He's been told to burn the books. He clearly knows who the bishop is, he knows who the members of his congregation are, and he doesn't want to have a big problem. You know, he, he goes up and he says, You know, this isn't and knocks on the door to the bishop. Says, Look, could you give me some books to burn, please? And he says, I don't have any books here. And they're, they're down over there. And they are sort of Go wandering around the town until finally they, they have some agreed upon books, which the guy is going to go burn so he can tell the emperor that he's, you know, the, or the governor that he's, that he's done this. Um, and I think there was clearly a wide range of response to Christians from people who thought they should be um, all thrown to the lions uh, to people who thought they were slightly strange neighbors. And then you know, on, on the Christian side, uh, there are going to be some people who feel that any kind of relationship with the imperial government is a betrayal of the principles uh, of the church and then there are others who are quite happy to go to dinner with the emperor. We can see, of course, at this point is the, the rise of asceticism and people rejecting, in a way, the standards uh, or the new world of the imperial church uh, by um, standing on pillars in the desert and things like that. Uh, but remain, you know, retaining this notion that there is an aspect of Christianity at this period that rejects the power structure uh, of imperial society.
0: It's definitely an interesting sort of moment for Christianity because up until this point historically it's been very much a sort of not just an outsider type of religion within the context of the empire but also considered a bit of a mystery religion as well to a certain extent like there are certain elements of it that you have to be part of a whole process in order to become enlightened and that doesn't necessarily gel well with that open public state imperialism and state cult that Rome has been about for so long no
1: absolutely not and i think that one of the things that you could we can see with constantine is this sort of gradual expansion of a public and imperial role for the church I mean, by the time that he dies Uh, Obviously, he's got a great big church right next to the palace in Constantinople, and you can see the emperor going to church and summoning councils of bishops, asking everybody in the court, well, if we believe Eusebius on this one, maybe not, but the idea that he's sitting wandering around the court saying, okay, it's time to pray, guys. The letter to to Archistus um, in Turkey is a very revealing letter he says, I'm granting you civic status because you have all the things you need to have to be a city. You've got some nice buildings and you've got a town council. And, uh, and so th- therefore I grant you a request. And by the way, I like it that you're all Christians too. <laughs> and so it's that both and that we see with Constantine that is, that is really critical. Uh, the same thing, of course, in the, the letter to his spellem, uh in the last year of his life. Uh, hi, we write to the Praetorian Prefect. We'd love to have uh, some gladiatorial games and celebrate the imperial cult. And the letter comes back, says, absolutely do whatever you like. You know, Have the games. Gladiators are fine. Just no sacrifice. But they're not building a church of the imperial cult. It's a temple of the imperial cult. And so it's this, you know, both sides are changing.
2: I think it's really interesting to consider because for most people, their exposure to Rome would come through movies. And of course, in movies, there's just constant antagonism between the Romans and the Christians. That's the story that we see. Um, and, and I love this idea that you've also brought up of, of disruption being something that you can't come back from because, of course, not too long after Constantine's death, you've got the Emperor Julian coming along and trying to you know rewind the clock. And that doesn't go very well for him, does it?
1: No, it doesn't, and most pagans thought he was being a pain in the neck. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, okay, you've got a few people, you know, who are the extreme, you know, theurgically inclined, but I mean, Julian is attached to the really extreme wing of theurgic Neoplatonism, uh, which most pagans simply thought was weird. You know, and it's clear that Ammianus is who, who wants to be very, very pro-Julian. He doesn't like Constantius. We understand that because he thought Constantius tried to get him killed at Amida. But when it comes to Julian, he says, I mean, he's a great hero and he kills barbarians. And it's a little bit unfortunate what happens here in uh, the middle of Iraq. Uh, but he doesn't like his religious policy. And he comments negatively on um, excessive sacrifice in Antioch. He con- comments negatively on banning Christians teaching the pagan pagan classics it said that none of this should have been done. This sort of intolerance is not the right is not the right thing and I think that very much uh, Ammianus represents very mainstream pagan reaction to Julian' uh, it's, pl- it's fine not to like Constantius but taking it all the way to the to the to the Christian church is further than than many pagans are willing to go.
0: I think this leads us into thinking about how there is this sort of gradual build-up in time, and and particularly what uh, Dr. Wright is saying about film as well, where we see a lot of antagonism between Christians and between the imperial cult as it stands in that sort of first and second centuries. And thinking about how this is gradually changing and why, uh, what sort of conditions are in place that makes Constantine's moment a moment that is not only disruptive, but a moment that works. Well, you're
1: right that really the issue of how Christianity gets itself established uh, in the empire is a really extraordinarily important one, because obviously you start with uh, not very many people in Palestine um, in the reign of Tiberius, but first moving out from the initial Jewish community, uh, the initial fights within the Christian community is the message of Jesus for other Jews, or is it for everybody? Uh, And then the mission of Peter and Paul. Um, And I think that the evidence uh, from the uh, letter to the Romans suggested that they were actually following the teachings of Jesus to say that this this message is for everybody. Uh, Because when Paul talks about uh, Junia, who was the apostle before me, this is a woman with a Roman name. Um, And I'd like to imagine she may actually have met Jesus. Um, How is she there before him? But it's still very much on the absolute uh, fringe of the Roman experience. Uh, It's really seen as an alternative form of Judaism, uh, I think, by most outsiders in the first century. I mean, if anybody gave the Christian church a boost, it was Nero. (laughs) What we see in the second century, the Eight of Martyr Acts, is that uh, leaders of the Christian community are also connected uh, with local leadership. Since we can see, of course, they're also very well-connected members of the synagogue, uh, I think, again, it's part of the movement of the Christian church out from a Jewish environment, uh, which has attracted to it uh, some members of the local elite. Uh, And in the middle of the second century, there are uh, highly educated Christian intellectuals uh, who are reshaping uh, Christian teachings in terms of contemporary uh, contemporary philosophy. Uh, they, I mean, again, when we can sort of see the first generation of Christian writings, they're still very much attached uh, to a community that is very inward looking. Uh, but by the time we get uh, to Irenaeus and others in the latter part of the second century uh, the teachings have begun to, to change and I think one of the advantages that Christianity has is has a story that everybody can know you know that the Son of God was incarnated uh, he was crucified and he rose from the dead and the end of the world's going to get come and you better get your act together between now and then <laughs> but in addition to that uh, we might want to think about the following few ideas on the side <laughs> um, and that, the, you know, that you can have uh, teachers traveling around uh, the empire um, uniting different communities, that so there gets to be a provincial level organization uh, for the church by the middle of the second century. I think the rise of different alternative thinking uh, helps solidify a sort of more central doctrine. These are the books that count. Marcion, please shut up. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, you don't get to rewrite the books uh, Montanus, no prophecy that's over, that's done with you don't get to say I am the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost uh, and walk in here uh, but uh, the, the response to extremism in Christianity helped shape a sort of central set of beliefs and a community uh, that could exist while being somewhat inward looking while defining itself as opposed to conventional Pagan thought, but also receptive to conversion. And as we move into the third century, of course, uh, we're again seeing more significant converts, more people like Tertullian uh, or Cyprian in the uh, or Origin. I mean, here's a major intellectual figure who's uh, who's a Christian. That people are beginning to see uh, Christians as more of a feature of the landscape. And when you have the two people who are associated most heavily with anti-Christian activity, uh, Decius with his edict on sacrifices and Valerian, uh, one ending up in a swamp killed by the Goths and another <laughs> one ending up as a footstool for the Persian
0: king. Oh, maybe this wasn't the best plan we ever had, guys. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Maybe it's not so surprising that maybe we should, you know, like, like Gallien has said, we should leave these people alone, which again has established the, the church as a fringe group, but still a recognizable one, in the third century, uh, and I think it would have stayed there uh, if again it hadn't been for persecution. It hadn't been for Diocletian. It hadn't been for Galerius. I mean, when Constantine decides to invade Italy, uh, he knows that the, everybody who's done this recently has failed. You know, Maximinus uh, didn't get out of northern Italy. I mean, you know, Galerius, the greatest soldier of his age, has failed. Um, who am I going to get to help me? Or well, what God does Galerius hate the most? How can I be least Galerius in all of this? Well, like God on the watchtower of heaven. But I think you know, it's really uh, very much of a dialectical process of uh, of, of expansion. Mm.
0: I think yeah, there's a there's a lot of complexity when you start looking into it because there's obviously like a, a really sort of heavy sense of what won't be tolerated that happens for a good period of time and then seeing this shift happen. And it, it takes a couple of centuries um, to get to this point. And, and then it's kind of the, the circumstances have made it clear. I mean, I certainly don't want to end up being a footstool for, for some sort of monarch in the east. And so I think to myself, well, if I'm Constantine, what should I start doing differently? Um <laughs> I think this sort of frames this idea of disruption really nicely in terms of Roman history more generally as well, because Rome itself has undergone many shifts before we've reached this sort of pivotal moment um, under Constantine. Um, We've got that shift from monarchy to republic that happens really early on, and also gradual shifts across the late first century BCE, which lead to a huge sort of moment in terms of the manifestation of republicanism moving into principate as well. To what extent do you think it would be fair to see these kinds of moments in Roman history as moments of disruption as well?
1: Well, I've never been a great fan of the expulsion of the kings, (laughs) especially when it's an elective kingship. Um, And then you say, instead of electing a king, we're going to elect two annual magistrates uh, and and the same chaps are going to be in charge, basically. Um, The shift at the end of the public i think is another example of a really large-scale disruption uh, because what the growth of the monarchy did was it enabled the ready incorporation of provincial subjects into the government and the, this is what made the a bit of the roman empire so different from any other ancient uh, mediterranean empire uh, is the fact that citizenship is open uh, that positions of the highest positions of leadership can go to people who are not members of the traditional aristocracy. What I tried to do actually in The Origin of Empire was to use models that have been used in early modern European history, uh, looking at how uh, you have basically a contractor state, uh, you know, because the Roman Republic is, is like massively undergoverned. You basically contract out everything. Well, by the middle of the century, you're also contracting out the, the military fundamentally. And you know, what you have is a civil war initially fought between the two largest military contractors that the, the Mediterranean has ever seen in Caesar and Pompey. And then, again, this repeats itself in the civil war between Octavian and Antony. But then what you gradually see with the, with the Augustan regime is bureaucratization of government. Uh, moving out from the imperial house, basically moving out from the victorious corporation, that you have local officials who are working uh, for the emperor. They run the imperial estates. They're helping funnel money into the uh, imperial treasury, which is being used to uh, supplement the state treasury. Uh, That senatorial office holding is becoming far more regularized. If you want to move from point A to point B, uh, you're going to have to do the following things. Um, so it is a 50 to 60 year period of uh, of radical disruption. But by the time uh, you get uh, really to the uh, death of Caligula, you know, as Josephus uh, tells us, um, the people are standing outside the Curia saying, the last thing we want is to go back to the Republic. That you have an infrastructure in place that can support a monarch who really isn't necessarily capable of running the show himself. Certainly Caligula. I mean, we've just seen, you know, again, there's a pretty obvious modern parallel to Caligula.
2: (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) Uh, uh,
1: But one of the things, I mean, as you know, the most recent Trump books have pointed out, the integrity of the bureaucracy kept him from doing what he wanted to do. And, Okay. One of the truths of the, about the effective overthrow of Roman emperors, uh, up until we get to the third century, it's a totally different order of business. Is they're killed by the staff?
0: Mm. Uh, there's nothing like having a complaint about your boss and then just making a real effort to deal with that.
2: Or <laughs> <All> themselves <laughs> in the well, case exactly. of Nero.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly. So, uh, but it's you know it's a sign that you can that there's a great deal of continuity. Uh, in the basic functioning of government, despite who is in, in charge, um, and that that is the really ultimate effect of the uh, bureaucratizing uh, aspect of the Augustan regime.
2: The system stands. <laughs>
1: exactly. <Yeah. laughs> exactly. Um, uh, but in writing a book that was going to go um, into the 20th century, I thought it was easier to start with a disruption that people can still see the effects of around them today.
2: Oh, certainly. Yeah. In terms of the, the longer term effects, I think the introduction of Christianity definitely has to trump Augustus. Sorry, Dr. G. <gasps> yeah.
0: <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I, I will take that. Um, I accept yeah. that Augustus is only slightly relevant to most people most of the time. <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. So it sounds like there's all of like this history of disruption that's sort of like at play um, in the Roman world already and really what we've got with Constantinius, is this huge landmark moment that sort of explodes out into Western consciousness and has these sort of flow-on consequences for how the medieval period onwards is navigating its own self in terms of identity. And this document that comes out from the Council of Nicaea gives a, a reference point of this moment of the interconnectivity of this new type of religion with an imperial and political machinery so we often talk about in Australia um, about the separation of church and state um, which is it's a it's a quaint idea and it's not something that actually happens when you start to look at how politics and spirituality is performed within the context of the country but it it does sort of sit in this nice sort of Westminster tradition of like church and state, different things. But what we see in this moment with Constantine is this, the bringing in of the religion to the state, um, rather than what we think about now in modern terms, which is very much the influence going the other direction. So I'm interested in how that sort of relationship is getting more and more complex for the Romans as well. And what sort of flow-on effects we see with that as a moment of disruption as well?
1: Right. Well, I think that when you look at the imperial cult, I mean, every place has its own way of celebrating the imperial cult. Uh, we, okay, we'll do it with this kind of game or that kind of game. You know, we'll sacrifice something here. and but, uh, but basically, the imperial cult is incorporating the emperor into local tr- traditions and local ways of doing things. After Constantine, what you have to do is get to the emperor through the church, through a, centralized institu- a central institution with a centralized doctrine. Now, of course, some of the biggest fights in Christianity are, what is that doctrine going to be? But still, the, the basic principle that you will celebrate the emperor uh, in accord with a centrally dictated doctrine is a really pretty fundamental change. And the way that the government is interacting with the subjects.
2: Get away in, Dr. Rad. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't dare. The, the, late, the late Roman Empire is so far out of my wheelhouse.
0: <laughs> I think it's a fascinating place. I don't. I haven't studied it quite enough. I, w- I won't say that I'm anywhere like an expert. I feel like as I get further into it, the, I think the point of Christianity within Rome that I'm most familiar with is that kind of second-century moment where we start to see the advent of a lot of texts come out written from Christian perspectives and they're set up as sort of philosophical dialogues and that sort of exchange of trying to present Christian ideas in styles and modes that classical readers will be able to feel more comfortable with and also start to get in touch with the ideas in a way that maybe doesn't feel like such a conflict for them.
1: Yes, so that's that's absolutely the sort of critical movement of the, of the second century is the explosion of books. Uh, but the other thing I think that's really significant when we look at that is that this is a religious system that is being communicated through books, which is not what is typical of a religious system for everybody else. You, know, you have the practical side of go and sacrifice the cow and or whatever. Um, the, the philosophic movements are often see themselves as, okay, here is our idea of God, and it really doesn't have much to do with you and the and the sacrifice over here. But this what we see with Christianity is, of course, the linking of the philosophical ideas with the religious practice. And I think that enables Christians to say, you know, okay, yes, these, these ideas of yours are all very nice, and they also work with us, you know, as opposed to, I am a Platonist and you are a Stoic. You are a fool. I am not. See, I mean, that there's an incorporative aspect to what's going on in the second century uh, because you, know, you can experiment with a whole range of, of different ideas in trying to get at an understanding of, of who God is.
2: So one of the things that's really interested me in talking about this and thinking about your book is uh, is actually the more historiographical aspect to it, this idea of doing really broad stroke history and looking at something, you know, an aspect of history over a really long period of time. In fact, when I looked at the the points that you'd identified in your book, it kind of reminded me a bit of big history and that idea of that the turning points that have been identified in big history to sort of divide up. Uh, divide up time. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about doing history on such a large scale.
1: Well, what I have always done at, at Michigan is teach very large undergraduate courses, right? which push you to teaching history on a large scale, because we've got to try to show people how it is that the experience of people in antiquity is really relevant to them today. You know, and if you're teaching a course on on sport, you can't really ignore um, the Olympics, uh, modern, um, you know, or the issues that arise uh, in contemporary athletics. Uh, and what I tried to do, really, with my book on ancient sport was to try to link issues uh, in ancient sport with modern sport. So really, I think it's, in a way, a benefit of teaching in an American system that you're constantly trying to engage across a very light, lo- uh, broad period of time. It's something that I find have always found very interesting um, to try to do. And I suppose the one thing I can thank Mr. Trump for uh, was the uh, inspiration uh, to really try and go out and do history in the way that I had always hoped to be able to try to do it, uh, which is to create a conversation between different periods of time to look at you know, broad, broad patterns. And, you know, as an, as an ancient historian, I think as well to really help people see that the experience of antiquity is still very relevant to them today and that it's worthwhile trying to understand it in its own terms. I mean, it's not, you know, the rise of Islam is uh, well, I think, uh, is a really fundamentally important change, and the process that we can see of Muhammad building a community of believers is very similar to the early development of, of Christianity. But sitting on top of that is the spectacular incompetence of uh, the Emperor Heraclius um, and the kings of Persia. you fight a 25-year, 28-year uh, war, uh, and you can't you don't have a sense of how to rebuild a society in the wake of a catastrophe. Um, and you know, when Heraclius starts saying to all the Monophysite uh, inhabitants of the empire, and now you're all going to be Chalcedonian, you can imagine what they're going to say. Oh, this guy. Uh, oh, isn't this guy interesting over here? We don't really know what he thinks, <laughs> but we're sick and tired of listening to this nonsense. I I hope uh, in many ways that Heraclius um, and Charles V were very similar figures uh, who were people who really weren't aware of the situation around them. Uh, Charles V, who couldn't learn German, uh, was trying to run the Holy Roman Empire, uh, making snotty comments about, Ger- about Germans, uh, and couldn't get that part of what is driving the Protestant Reformation is people being sick and tired of the way that he is lack of responsiveness to them. And so one of the things that goes into these disruptions, of course, is self-undermining government. Tsar Nicholas was um, the same way, but we we can start looking at this over time and say, what happens when you get into this situation? There's a point where I think we can start using history very usefully to help us think about what's going on around us in the present
2: definitely uh, I I actually have to teach uh, the Romanovs and the Russian revolution and every year my students are like oh how could he be so stupid how could he not see what was happening what was going to come like how could he not see that but it, it is one of those those classic things when you look at those moments isn't it that you uh you don't know you can't see what's going to happen some of the time
1: no and the fact that Basically, you know, Nicholas was removed from office by his own general staff. Yes. But you know, besides getting rid of the idiot, what is the next plan? Yeah. yeah but, the, but the failure of Kerensky to understand that you've got to end this war uh, and do so immediately. I mean, Lenin comes back with a very clear message. That's a lesson to everybody.
2: Yeah, I think it's. I always it's always kind of interesting. I think when you look at things like the French and the Russian Revolution, in that they have this popular perception as being dri- very much driven by the lower class, and there is that element there. But really, it's the people higher up who are making the the first move. In a sense of, we've got to get away from this because this is not going to work out for anybody.
1: Exactly, and of course, if you, I mean, you look at people like Robespierre. Of course, these are quite well educated lawyers. Absolutely yeah, uh, you know, Lenin was a very highly educated uh, highly educated man and was anything but a real friend of the worker who he didn't really feel he could trust.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like the popular perception is it's like it's all these hungry, starving peasants or the workers in the factories, but it's not really.
1: No, exactly. I mean, well, again, you were talking about the perception of Christianity in the movies. You know, it's always, you know, where's the next lion? <laughs> um, and, you know, there's a, a sense in the... Um, and uh, the popular perception of the Russian Revolution is still Dr Zhivago.
2: Ah, oh, I love that movie. I don't blame people for being sucked in by that movie. <laughs> no,
1: I, I, I don't either. I think it is a totally yeah. brilliant movie, but it's a Lenin-free Russian Revolution.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Well, and even, as you say, even if we go back to the the movies, you know, about Rome and Romans versus Christians, it's always, it's often a very average person, you know, who either converts to Christianity, or it's a very average Christian who's making the big difference and getting through to the corrupt emperor. It's, It's not usually the emperor himself or like people around him who are making the big changes.
1: Exactly. Whereas, in fact, it was the emperor and the people around him who made the big change.
2: Absolutely. Well, I guess this this kind of segues nicely into our, our final question that we had for you, which kind of takes us back to the beginning of this conversation, which is studying history in terms of disruption. How can that help us understand what is going on today? Because I think definitely with the things that have been happening in Britain, with the things that have been happening with the USA, People, I think, are certainly feeling uh, an uneasiness in the last five years.
1: But I think that's absolutely right. And the, the first principle of, disrupt, of disruption is a loss, of a general loss of faith in existing institutions. And I think that since um, 2008, uh, certainly people have felt that government has done nothing for them. I mean, we've seen that the people who... Are able to invest in the stock market, have done very well for themselves, uh, but the average worker in the United States and Europe has seen no Im- improvement in their wages. They, it is very easy to blame outsiders. I mean, the anti-immigrant rhetoric of the European right and the American right underscore and and really disguise the actual issues that are driving this populist movement. It's very easy to create an enemy as the outsider. Uh, whereas it's very much more complicated to say that the company that I have just, o- or like, except I would never order from Amazon. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, disclaimer, disclaimer. Uh, yes, <laughs> the absolute disclaimer, uh, that, uh, that it is giant, Uh, monopoly tech that has had an extraordinarily damaging effect on local economies all across the world. And the government is unwilling to rein this in. And the fact that we are now watching billionaires in space Mm -hmm. really underscores to my mind how we have moved back in a direction of the Gilded Age in a period before there was effective Uh, legislation against monopoly capitalism. I think in this country, uh, Joe Biden uh, has moved to try to do something about that, but it is a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, And the first six months of the Biden administration uh, have been ones in which I think that Biden has done a lot to try to show people that government can actually work for them. And the rollout of the vaccine program, uh, but it's a very difficult thing to do because you know, there's a sense in which the White House is at war with the entrenched interests in uh, that are inherent in the political system that it is very very hard to pass actual antitrust uh, legislation in this country. you can appoint people who've been very significant uh, theorists in this area like a uh, uh, Irene Khan to try to move the government in that direction. it's a recognition I think, Of the nature of the difficulty, but it's also a recognition of the absolute difficulty of making a change. Uh, And uh, if you look at the just sheer incompetence of Boris Johnson, uh, again, how do you get this person uh, in power telling a whole series of lies? Uh, And it's the power of the lie uh, in American and European politics, uh, I think. That really sort of draws attention to how we need to be very careful of the moment we're in. And that's one thing that I hope that as people read this book, they can see that you can have a very positive disruption if you can find a new center and a way to move forward.
2: Definitely. Yeah, I think I've I've never been so grateful uh to the pandemic than when biden got elected over trump i i was like you know what i can see the silver lining to this pandemic (laughs) and it's the fact that there's actually a glimmer of hope now in
1: america (laughs) absolutely but there's a lot of work to be done
2: for sure yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting to be thinking about this in the current time period as well, uh, shifting away. Well, I, I suppose it's, it's become a political issue, but it shouldn't really be living in the decade that we are, where we know that we're in such a tipping point in terms of what we do in terms of the environment and climate policies. I mean, I, I hope that this, this age that we're living through right now, I mean, the next 5, 10 years are an age of positive disruption, as you have highlighted, where we can make a positive change um, and it is going to be one that has lasting impacts. It could go the other way though, and end up in your book as a <laughs> as a very sad footnote in history. But hopefully not. <laughs> well,
1: that's that's a, in a way that's why I wrote the book. Yes. Is, uh, to hope to really to get us to think about what it is we're facing and what steps we need to take to move towards a positive end.
0: And I think this is a fantastic sort of way to wrap up as well, because what this book does by thinking about disruption and the key elements that sort of underpin successful disruption is it kind of provides a sense of there is a bit of a role model here. If you're looking to engage in disruptive action, there are ways of achieving it that are successful and we see basically a a sense of this case study element of history coming through in the way that you've put this together being like look at how it happens in this period of time with these people and this idea And, and all the way through into the 19th century where we're talking about political theories that still have quite a lot of consequence today for the way that we engage and so I think in a sense there is a hopefulness attached To this book and this kind of work, because it's both historical, but it's also a bit of a roadmap as well.
1: Well, that's what I. That's thank you very much for saying that because that's exactly what I was hoping uh, people would would feel in reading the book.
2: No, I think they definitely will because to come back to your initial point. I think that there is a fear factor attached when you use terms like revolution with people. Mm -hmm. They tend, I mean, it, it does sound a bit confronting and if they think about historical revolutions, they often obviously involve violence, not all of them, but they do sometimes involve things that people naturally shrink from and are a bit reluctant to engage in. But disruption can definitely be looked at, as you say, in a more positive light and it's not necessarily quite as confronting.
1: That's exactly, exactly, exactly my feeling.
2: Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. As I say, it's a real honor to meet someone who's actually in the bibliography of my own work.
1: <laughs> well, it's an absolute pleasure to, to meet you and to, to be able to talk to you.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Um, uh, thank you so much for having me.
0: An absolute pleasure.